Good evening. Biden steps back from regime change. A report from the Russian side. Is there really a bioweapons lab built by the U.S. and Ukraine? And a slap at the Oscars. More jobs for New York, but are they subpar? With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, March 28, 2022. The Russian military general staff announced last week that their main objectives have been accomplished in what they call the first stage of the operation in Ukraine. A Russian military spokesperson added the combat potential of the armed forces of Ukraine has been considerably reduced and that this would allow Russia to concentrate on its main goal, what the military terms the liberation of Donbass, a Russian-speaking enclave in the far east of Ukraine that's been at war with the central government in Kiev since 2014. But the general staff officer added ominously the storming of Ukrainian cities blocked by Russian troops is still possible, adding, although we're not ruling out such a possibility, our forces and equipment will focus on the most important thing, the complete liberation of Donbass. The Russian Defense Ministry also revealed its losses in the special military operation in Ukraine, 1,351 dead, 3,825 injured, much lower than Western and NATO uh, or Ukrainian government estimates. Meanwhile, today, President Joe Biden stepped back his veiled threat for regime change in Russia. He made during a speech in Brussels last week. Here's a clip from that speech. Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia, for free people refused to live in a world of hopelessness and darkness. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principle, hope and light, of decency and dignity, of freedom and possibilities. For God's sake, this man cannot remain power. The president also made the threat to respond to an allegation made without evidence of a possible Russian chemical weapons attack. He had to step back in the same way. He basically walked back both statements today at a news conference after a speech introducing his budget. Do you now regret saying that because your government has been trying to walk that back? Did your words complicate matters? Well, yes, three different questions. I'll answer them all. Number one, I'm not walking anything back. The fact of the matter is I was expressing the more outrage I felt toward the way Putin is dealing and the actions of this man, just just brutality of half the children in Ukraine. I had just come from being with those families. And uh, and so uh, but I want to make it clear I wasn't then nor am I now articulating a policy change. I was expressing the moral outrage that I feel and I make no apologies for it. Personal, my, my personal feelings. Secondly, you asked me about, uh, well, what was the second part? Complicate the diplomacy of this moment. No, I don't think it does. You know, uh, the, uh, uh, the fact is that we're in a situation where what uh, um, complicates the situation at the moment is the, uh, the escalatory efforts of Putin to uh, continue to engage in carnage, the kind of behavior that... Uh, that makes the whole world say, my God, what is this man doing? That's what complicates things a great deal. And uh, um, but I, I don't think it complicates it at all. President Biden hmm, sounds like backtracking to this reporter, a correspondent for RT America. The Russian government news outlet is Caleb Malpin. He tells WBAI the Kremlin is contemplating an agreement with the leaders of pro-Russian forces in eastern Ukraine, the area known as the Donbass, to secede and join with Russia. And that when it comes to his threats, Biden is being undiplomatic. 
Russia is almost in control with its allies of these territories that the entire operation is intended to protect. The city of Mariupol, which was being guarded by a bastion of the Azov Battalion extremists, that has been liberated, and a number of these Azov Battalion forces have been defeated. The denazification, which is the official stated purpose of the operation, is to, to wipe out these extremist gangs that have been cultivated by the Ukrainian government seems to be near completion. If the people of Donetsk and Lugansk can get security guaranteed, now that Ukraine has made clear it doesn't want them to be part of Ukraine, I think there's a very good chance this conflict could end. Ukraine has completely backed away from their original idea to get nuclear weapons. So if the security of the people of Donetsk and Lugansk can be recognized, I think there's a very good chance this fighting and this conflict could end very soon. I hope that is the case. Russia does not want a long-term engagement in Ukraine. The statements by the president, the one where he basically said, we'll respond in kind. He's walked it back today and said he just meant it as an emotional outburst. On the surface of it, it just looks like incompetence. This man is the president of the United States, the biggest military in the entire world. For him to be saying, oh, we want to overthrow a government. Oh, actually, we don't want to overthrow a government. It sounded like he was saying we might carry out chemical attacks. This is not responsible behavior. And this man is not competent for the position that he's in if he's using such sloppy diplomacy. You don't talk that way as a head of state. One could interpret this as the other way, right? If Joe Biden can make these threats and then walk them back, it's a way of making the threat and then being able to disavow it later and say, oh, we didn't really, really mean that. They talk about dog whistles. They talk about coded language. So this is a way to make the threat but then have deniability afterwards. And that's not responsible either. In diplomacy, it's very important that countries speak directly and clearly to each other and say what they mean and mean what they say. The Russian side bringing up uh, nuclear weapons and raising the alert, seems like both sides have been ratcheting up the rhetoric, let's put it that way. Sure, well, I mean, Russia held off doing this for eight years, and they waited and they waited and they waited for the Minsk Accord to be recognized. They waited as the people of Donetsk and Lugansk were being bombed and shelled. They waited as these Azov battalion groups were being trained and cultivated by U.S. leaders. They waited and they waited and they waited. Then we heard this announcement to get nuclear weapons from the Ukrainian side. And from there, we heard that basically there was going to be some kind of onslaught against the eastern regions. They were just going to go in and slaughter these people. And at that point, Russia took a move. You can argue they should have waited. Some in Russia, like the Communist Party, would argue they should have done this eight years ago. Russia is at this point doing in its own calculations, what it thinks is in its best interest as a country. It's not being reported over here. There's just a blackout in news media. I mean, have you seen how they're executing Russian prisoners of war? The horrendous things that these Ukrainian extremists are doing in the area that they control, mainly targeting people on the basis of their ethnicity, if they're Russian-speaking or ethnically Russian. You're not even allowed to explain what Russia's motivations might be other than, oh, Putin's insane or something like that. It's it's quite frightening to see the one-sided reporting in American media. What happens after this? Since Crimea joined with Russia, it has economically benefited very substantially. I think it is the biggest bridge in all of Europe constructed in order to allow access to the Crimean Peninsula. I've been to Yalta. I've seen the huge amount of economic development that has taken place in Crimea since it made the decision to join with Russia. Originally, the Donetsk and Lugansk republics did not want to join with Russia. They wanted to be independent and they wanted to pursue an independent course, hoping to go to back to something more like the Soviet system, building statues of Lenin. They're the Lugansk People's Republic, the Donetsk People's Republic. But at this time, my understanding is the prevailing feeling in Lugansk and Donetsk is that they would like to have their republics become part of the Russian Federation. If that can be agreed on and this conflict can end, that's most likely going to happen, I would suspect. And that is... Caleb Maupin, 
He is a correspondent for RT America, a Russian government news outlet that's been closed by U.S. sanctions. In related news, an article in the recent edition of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists is titled, Amid False Russian Allegations of U.S. Biolabs in Ukraine, It's Worth Asking, What is a Bioweapon? That was written by Matt Field. Field says there's nothing secret in the United States collaboration with Ukraine in building biological laboratories, and none of them had anything to do with warfare. The U.S. government has been working specifically with Ukraine as well as a whole host of other former Soviet republics to upgrade labs as part of public health and uh, animal health projects and to improve the diagnostic ability that those labs have for dealing with uh, endemic viruses and bacteria. They've been engaged in a lot of cooperative studies with scientists in the U.S. and, and in other places. There's nothing to the Russian allegation. This idea that this was a secret program has no merit at all. The idea that these are U.S. bioweapons labs, that also doesn't hold any water. These are run by local governments, including Ukraine, and they receive help through a partnership with the U.S. government. Why have biowarfare labs at all? These aren't biowarfare labs. These are uh, labs researching animal diseases and public health problems like COVID-19. I understand that the Russians, one of the arguments they were making was that this study done by an agreement with or in partnership with German researchers on tick-borne diseases was a bioweapons program or somehow related to a bioweapons project. But that's the sort of thing you might want to study if you had a problem with pathogens and ticks. Research that's just out there that's funded by the Defense Department and is put into academic journals and it's by Ukrainian scientists on perfectly innocuous subjects. So this idea that there's this secret bioweapons program just doesn't hold any water. And the birds, they were going to use migrating birds to spread disease and other things that were released. If you want to study avian influenza, which a lot of people do study, you study birds. <laughs> so there's been nothing secretive about these experiments, and they're not bioweapons experiments. They're epidemiological studies, studies to see what sort of viruses and pathogens that people in these countries, including Ukraine, have been exposed to. You know, for instance, I uh, found a, a woman, a Bulgarian journalist, and she wrote this very conspiratorial piece about how a project run by the Defense Department that involved the Defense Department partnership could be causing death among Ukrainian volunteers. And uh, her argument was that this piece of boilerplate legal documentation that she had come across says accidents must be reported to the, the officials running the experiment. You can imagine people put into boilerplate legal documents. It doesn't imply that this particular experiment, which dealt with taking blood draws, a harmless procedure, and seeing what viruses, whether volunteers have been exposed to a hantavirus or the Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, nothing about that experiment could cause death. Yet she was taking this little snippet from a legal document and blowing it up to suggest that this was some sort of dangerous, risky biological research project being run by the Pentagon. Well, we're not supposed to have one. It's an international treaty. It's frightening to think that people are possibly ignoring that international treaty and doing it anyway. What what does that credibility does that give to any international treaty? If you talk to people that are more expert than I am on the Biological Weapons uh, Convention, the treaty that bans bioweapons, they'll say that it's not a, a perfect arrangement. Many people talk about how it doesn't have the ability for, to verify whether this or that party to the agreement is violating the agreement. 
it's better to have a ban on bioweapons than not to have one. And there are certain benefits that people point to of having this treaty. 20-some countries have had programs, biological weapons research efforts or programs in the modern times. If you think that there are way more countries than that, maybe there is something to having this uh, treaty that at least attempts to tamp down on this problem. That is Matt Field. He's the author of Amid False Russian Allegations of U.S. Biolabs in Ukraine, It's Worth Asking What is a Bioweapon. It's in today's edition of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist. Meanwhile, Chinese President Xi Jinping, speaking by phone, urged British Prime Minister Boris Johnson to make genuine efforts to promote peace talks when dealing with the Ukraine crisis and create conditions for a political settlement of the matter. And another Russian government news outlet, one of the few easily available in the United States, the only actually that I've been able to find since sanctions closed down Russian media outlets operating in the United States, published a video clip of a United Kingdom resident who has been living in the besieged city of Mariupol in Ukraine. The resident says there was a story circulating that the Ukraine army was ready to destroy the city rather than surrender. Rumor Again, it could be like a rumor of the Russian soldiers being in the next basement. I have no idea. But my wife said that somebody had said the Ukraine army wanted to uh, surrender. The various militias, Azov Battalion and right sector and who else, I don't know, um, had, opened when the, had, had opened fire on the Ukrainian soldiers and had said that they were going to create another St Stalingrad? No. Stalingrad. If they had to give up Mariupol, there was going to be nothing left of Mariupol. The Battle of Stalingrad, widely referred to as the most epic military clash in history, pitted the Red Army against the German Army. It led to the defeat of the Germans and beginning of the end of Nazi Germany. And in another story related, in Israel, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. The Israeli leader is walking a tight rope in his friendship with both Russia and Ukraine, and he tried to not make anybody mad. As for the war in Ukraine, Israel stands firm with the people of Ukraine and is going to continue our effort to help reduce the suffering and end the bloodshed. We've already sent our top medical teams to set up the most advanced field hospital inside Ukraine on the western side. I've uh, been reported that they've already taken care and treated over 500 patients. Naftali Bennett is the Prime Minister of Israel. And in national news, speaking on a windy Saturday evening at a former drag racing strip in the town of Commerce, northeast of Atlanta, former President Donald Trump touted a slate of seven GOP primary challengers and continued a scorched earth approach against incumbent Governor Brian Kemp and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and their allies for failing to attempt to overturn his 2020 defeat. He also slammed President Biden's approach to Russia and the Ukraine war. And just when you thought it couldn't get worse, Joe Biden totally failed to deter Russia's disgraceful invasion of Ukraine. All those people are dead. Putin's heinous attack on a proud and sovereign nation shocks the conscience of every person of goodwill, shocks the conscience of the people of Georgia, I can tell you, where we spent a fortune on your vets and we spent a fortune on rebuilding your military right here. What a job we did. The invasion of Ukraine should never have happened. 
former President Donald Trump. As you might remember, he had tried to use a arms package deal to the president of Ukraine to force the president of Ukraine to uh, help him beat and find dirt on uh, President Biden by uh, telling tales on his son who had a business interest in Ukraine. Referring back to the story about bioweapons, the Russian government, uh, and you can get some of their statements on the app Telegram, has been claiming that there was some connection between Hunter Biden and the uh, bio labs, bioweapons labs, they say, were built by the United States in Ukraine. I didn't really see anything in that other than a statement by the government. More may come out, and mostly these kind of stories come out after the war is over, and we can sift through afterwards, hopefully. And in more undiplomatic slaps, this at the Oscars last night, questions are being raised about why the actor Will Smith had faced no repercussions for slapping the comedian Chris Rock during Sunday night's telecast. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Scientists, which administers the awards, today denounced his actions and said it was starting an inquiry. The brouhaha began when Chris Rock told a joke about Will Jada Pinkett Smith about Will's wife, who has alopecia, a condition that leads to hair loss. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. All right? <laughs> it's, that, was a, that was a nice one. Okay. I'm out here. Uh-oh. Richard. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. It was a G.I. Jane joke. Keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth. I'm going to, okay? <laughs> I could, oh, okay. That was a greatest night in the history of television. Okay. Okay. Lesson number one. Do not make jokes about a man's wife, especially on TV in front of him. The Academy was not known to have expelled a member before 2017 when Harvey Weinstein was removed amid allegations of sexual harassment and rape. Then in 2018, after adopting a code of conduct for members, the organization expelled Bill Cosby, who had been convicted of sexual assault, and the filmmaker Roman Polanski, who had fled the country years earlier while awaiting sentencing for statutory rape. And President Joe Biden unveiled his fiscal year 2023 budget proposal today. And while it includes increased funding for security and reduces the deficit, officials admit inflation could continue to cause problems for the overall economy. At a White House event to announce the budget, Biden said that the proposal was composed of three main tenets, fiscal responsibility, safety and security, and investments to build a better America. And he said he was not in favor of defunding the police. To tackle security in two key ways. First, it secures our communities at home. This is an issue families in every part of the country face. I've said it before. The answer is not to defund our police departments. It's to fund our police and give them all the tools they need, training and foundation and partners and protectors in our, that our communities need. The budget puts more police on the street for community policing so they get to know the community they're policing, allows the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms and the FBI to hire the agents they need to help fight gun crime and other violent crimes in our communities, and funds body cameras, 
and make sure police work with our local communities and are accountable to these communities. It funds crime prevention and community violence intervention, drug treatment, mental health, criminal justice reform, and re-entry for people coming home after incarceration. All demonstrable ways to reduce crime in proven ways. Biden said his proposed $1.3 trillion budget would uh, stand to be the largest uh, one-year reduction in the deficit in U.S. history. He plans to reduce the deficit by a large amount. He blamed former President Trump for increasing the deficit, as they call it. As Russia's invasion of Ukraine continues, though, the proposed budget has a $6.9 billion increase for the European Deterrence Initiative and NATO for, quote, countering Russian aggression to support Ukraine. And in news from Albany, Governor Kathy Hochul announced she wanted to repeal the law known as 421A. The law provides a tax break for developers who set aside a percentage of units in a new building for moderate income residents while reducing their carbon footprint. Today, opponents of 421A protested in Albany and at Governor Hochul's Manhattan offices. They say the tax break hasn't added significant numbers of units for low-income New Yorkers while providing billions to luxury developers. New York City Comptroller Brad Lander agrees with the protesters. He says 421A is tinkering around the edges and that the state needs what Lander calls long overdue comprehensive property tax reform that would eliminate the inequities in the housing market. Developers who support the law say without it, they wouldn't have incentive to build affordable housing at all. And Mayor Adams announced today that JetBlue will hire approximately 5,000 New York City-based employees this year as part of a workforce partnership at a JFK Airport News conference today. The airline said it will expand to 300 flights a day by the summer. It currently operates about 200 flights a day out of New York City. Mayor Eric Adams is there and says the airline's new hires would play such a significant role in the recovery of New York City, adding it's time to get New York City air travel off the ground. This is a moment of finally getting our economy back into flight so we can turn around our city and show the country how resilient we are. So we need you. We need you. As you go through this period of being interviewed, think about what you are about to embrace. That young person that never traveled before, his first experience on the plane, a little apprehension, a little butterflies in the stomach. That mother or father that sends their loved one off to school for the first time. The people who are going on their honeymoon or individuals who are going to visit a sick loved one as my brother just took a plane flight to see his daughter. You have such a significant role in the recovery of New York City. Now, last week, Adams declared an end to the city's school mask mandate for children under five. His latest move to restore a sense of normalcy in a city battered by the coronavirus. Today, though, he donned a mask at the Kue Luck Early Childhood Center in Rigo Park, Queens, where the mayor echoed calls for increased investment in the state budget for early childhood education. Our property tax abatement proposal will help support the creation of, of approximately 11,000 new child care seats. And our business income tax proposed credit will help support the creation 
of 6,000, over 6,000 infant and toddler seats. So this issue is real to us. It's part of our upstream mindset that if we want to start the process of developing great adults, it start with developing great children, and that's done inside a child care environment. Child care is not a child sitting home all day watching TV. That is not child care. Child care is bringing them into an environment where they're able to expand and develop themselves, their full personhood, song, dance, language, seeing different faces, different cultures, understanding the, the diversity of living in a city as diverse as, as New York. If we want to stop anti-Semitism, anti-Asian violence, of anti-LGBTQ and African-Americans, others, bring our children into environments where they can learn from each other and grow together. That is the first seed we plant. And that was the mayor. Schools Chancellor David Banks called it critically important to provide young children with literacy and language support from birth. Adams says he's optimistic that state support would come through and those dollars would supplement city proposals to expand seats in daycare centers. And that's from this. Pardon me. And that's some of the news for Monday, March 28th, 2022. The news produced with Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.